Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a real special guest. Her name is Nicole Bell, and she's an author, an entrepreneur, and she's an advocate for people with neurodegenerative diseases. She advanced her professional career as an engineer and a program manager and spent the last 15 years in medical devices and medical technology. She served as vice president of research for a country, a company called Trans Enterix. It's got a, a bigger name now called Ascensus Surgical, where she built a world-class team of surgical robotics and led the company's worldwide product development efforts. But when her husband became chronically ill, she left that position to take on her most challenging role, which was to really be a caregiver and, and to be an advocate for him as the world went crazy. Originally from Boston, Massachusetts, Nicole earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in and material science and engineering from MIT. And, and a master's of science degree in medical engineering from Duke University. She currently lives outside of Raleigh, North Carolina with her two children. Okay, let's talk a little bit, Nicole. Uh, wow, you've had a crazy life. I mean, you've climbed a pyramid. I mean, going through in medical technology, and, and being a woman doing it, it is a very difficult task. I, I mean, it's still a male-dominated field for a large part. And, and you know, I, I remember many years ago, one of my nieces wanted to be an engineer. And she was told under un, no uncertain terms by her father that he would not let a girl become an engineer in that male-dominated profession. And, and it's still true in a large part of the world, be it biomechanical engineering or anything like that. Engineering still is, is really a, a medical world, is it not? Yeah, I think that it's, it's beginning to change, but I've definitely seen that in my career. I think my first job out of college, I remember multiple times being the only woman in the room. And I also traveled and did a lot of work in Asia where women are not necessarily in the engineering profession as much. And so it's definitely taken some getting used to, but I love engineering. I've always been a problem solver. I love math and science and it just fit for me. So that's always been a passion of mine. Now, now tell me a little bit more about you were at the top of the pyramid. You were 
doing a lot in that. You had your own team of people. You were doing some amazing things in bioengineering. And then stuff happened. Yeah. The world went crazy. Okay. Yeah. What went on? What happened with your husband and stuff like that? Yeah, I, it really was. I was in a great place in my life. I had a fabulous husband. He was older than I was. He was about 20 years older and he'd had a great career. And he said that he wanted to step back so that we could raise a family and be Mr. Mom. So he kept telling me, it's your time to shine. I want to support you. I've had a great career. Let's folk. I'll focus on the family and you can do what you need to now and I'll support you in any way. So it was great because I was working in a fast growing company in surgical robotics. I had a loving husband, supportive and two beautiful young children. So I really thought, Hey, I, I can actually do it all. Right. And then I think over time, my husband, Russ, he just started to change. He was an engineer like myself. And so we didn't argue a lot. We would just debate it was really kind of empowering. We would figure out who had the larger, the better argument, and then we would get to the right answer, often by combining our ideas. But all of a sudden, we were fighting all the time. He was depressed. He was moody. He was, the logic that he used to have seemed to be gone. And we went to therapy, but it didn't seem to work. And it got to the point where I thought we were going to get divorced. I thought we were one of those casualties of young children, you know, the stresses of kids and how it changes your life. And maybe it wasn't going to be a fit. But then I started realizing that he was having other symptoms. In 2016, he started having memory lapses. He couldn't see, he couldn't remember the code to our house alarm. He couldn't remember the time to pick up the kids. And he was the, one of the smartest people I'd ever met. So it was really uncharacteristic. And that was when I realized there was something more sinister at play. And we started going to doctors and he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease, which was a complete shock. I was completely floored. And, and furthermore, the PET scan that we had revealed that he had late stage disease. So I was just realizing that there was something wrong with him cognitively. And the doctors were telling me that he was already in the late stages of the disease and that the illness was entrenched. So it was like a complete baseball bat to the face, honestly. And I felt helpless and, and didn't know what to do. And modern medicine doesn't really have a lot of solutions when it comes to Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases. So we felt and it's very tough. It's very tough when you're pigeonholed because once that diagnosis is there, it's very hard not to see what you already see. Okay. So once the diagnosis is put, it's very hard to get out of it. And, and that's the, the situation I think most people find themselves in. They have a doctor that's decided to pigeonhole them and is unwilling to think of anything else. And, you know, this is, a difficulty with medicine. You know, when I was an internist, we used to have something called a differential diagnosis, meaning that's our top guesses. And we'd always put together a list of the top guesses. And we'd even put down together the things that were not likely, the things that were unlikely. So, you know, sure, it's said that when you hear horse beats, you're supposed to think of horses, not zebras. But 
it was always behooved us when we, when I was going through my training, that you should always think of the zebras as well, because the zebras might be there. And it might be, you might be on the savanna of Africa and you might be actually hearing zebras rather than horse beats. But if you don't think of them, you will never, ever be able to get there. And that's the problem that we deal with is, you know, when you're dealing with dementia, you should always think about the reversible causes of dementia, the things that you can fix, the things that you can make better. Because if you can fix them, guess what? You've just made it a better day. You've made things wonderful. And, and not all things that look like dementia are dementia. You know, there's an old line, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Well, in medicine, it's not always that way. It's all thought not that way. But it, it, it is difficult to, to break the mold and think outside the mold. Yeah. So, so how did what happened to you? How did you start moving? I, I, I live in Edmonton, Alberta, so I always talk in hockey references. How did you move the puck forward? How did you decide to to get things done for your husband? Well, as I said, I'm an engineer, and so I like to solve problems. And also, I had worked in really complex systems like robotics, where you're used to doing root cause analysis, right? If you have an issue with the robot, you don't just look at the symptoms, you try and figure out what's the root cause and fix it. And so what was happening with Russ didn't make any sense. He was very young, you know, definitely early onset. He had no genetic predisposition and he was really declining rapidly. And all of my research was basically saying that that didn't make sense. It was not a typical case. And so I started digging and I, I started asking doctors to look for those zebras. I had him testing, tested for everything that we could think of and everything I was finding. And frankly, I had a lot of doctors that looked at me like I was crazy and everything kept coming back negative. And they kept telling me all of his lab work was quote unquote normal. And we went for about a year, I went from neurologist to neurologist to neurologist trying to find answers and figure it out to the point where I had basically almost given up because I felt helpless in trying to find some root causes. There, I was getting no support from the doctors, no support, and nothing in his lab results was indicating anything other than, you know, Alzheimer's disease, which was, is really, in my opinion, more of a symptom than it is a root cause. And so it actually just happened by accident or, or just happenstance, I guess. My brother was also having an issue with his family. His wife had been dealing with chronic illness for years and her symptoms were different, but had gone on the same story of doctor to doctor to doctor. And they had finally figured out that the root cause of her illness was tick-borne. She had Lyme disease, uh, Babesia and Bartonella, which are two common co-infections with Lyme disease. And so my brother's a doctor and he started researching and he had seen all of the links between Borrelia or Lyme disease, the bacteria causing Lyme and neurocognitive disease issues and neurodegeneration. And so he became convinced that this is what was going on with Russ. And honestly, Lyme disease was my first thought before we even went to a neurologist, we went to an integrative med medical practitioner and I had him tested 
And they tested him with the standard CDC methodology and he tested negative. And so we kind of got thrown off the trail and, you know, but it, it made sense because he was a hunter. He was always in the woods. He had lived all over the United States and different parts of the com- country known to be endemic. And I had pulled lots of ticks off of him, but he tested negative. So we gave up, but my brother convinced me to get him retested with a different method. Instead of using the CDC methodology, we actually tested with a PCR test, looking not for the antibody response, but for the actual bacteria itself. And with that method, he tested positive for Borrelia, the bacteria causing Lyme, Bartonella. And then later on, after we started seeing a Lyme literate physician, he also tested antibody positive for Babesia. And so yeah, but that was a year after we got his Alzheimer's diagnosis. So we had lost the, a lot of ground. It is, you know, the testing for the standard testing for Lyme's disease is not very good. It, it is, if it is positive, it means something. If, it, if it's negative, it means absolutely nothing. And so the standard testing is something that is not very good. The yeah. problem is the testing is not is not agreed on by the medical community in this point in time. And, you know, many people will debate what is the proper testing for it and so on. Uh, There is a group of, uh, there is a test put out by a company in California called Igenix that puts out a test that some people agree with and some people do not agree with, but it tests for the the factors that are on the, the Lyme Borrelia. And so it looks for the things that are on the surface of it. And so if you're positive to a number of those factors, it means that it's more likely you have Lyme's disease than not. And the co-infections that go along it are very important as well, because if you can treat the co-infections, if you can treat some of the Lyme's treatment, you sometimes can get people better. And, And this is why this is so important. Now, it's very important to realize that Lyme's disease was first found in New England. It was found in three counties. One was Lyme, the other one was Old Lyme, and the other one was East Harden. And what happened with Lyme's disease is a number of women were finding their children were sick. And they go to the doctor and the doctor would say, no, they're just crazy. They're just having a kid's moment. They're just, there's nothing wrong with them. But the mothers kept insisting that they were sick. And so that they found after time, there was this disease called Lyme disease that came up. Now, there is another disease uh, that is really debated, and that's called chronic Lyme's disease. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about here with Alzheimer's, that it's not the Lyme disease itself that's causing it. It's the immunological response to the Lyme uh, bacteria that's doing it. And so this is the difficulty we get into with this, is that people debate whether this disease actually exists. And you will get doctors, educated doctors, get on podiums and argue whether this disease actually exists or not. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And I've seen it firsthand, chronic Lyme disease firsthand, not only in Russ, but also having met, I mean, dozens and dozens of people through my networking and community who have been afflicted. And it's, it's so tragic because 
the medical gaslighting that they experience, you know, the, the quote unquote labs are normal and all the misinformation that you get from the tr- traditional medical community is preventing people from getting well and people are misdiagnosed or completely lost in their journey. And it's really quite a tragedy because it is a real issue. And these are stealthy bacteria that are difficult to detect. And it leads to a lot of chronic illness out there. Yeah. And it is difficult. And I, I hope that one that, you know, with COVID, there's no doubt there is a disease called long COVID disease. So, so why can't we have long Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease? I I mean, it, 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 it makes sense that when you have a bacteria that is difficult to treat, that it can be in a chronic factor in a chronic way, if you don't get rid of it at the beginning. And so this is the difficulty that we're faced with, with things, but it takes doctors thinking outside the box. It really takes doctors thinking of things in different ways. It really takes doctors willing to say they're wrong. And that's something that's very difficult for doctors. That's difficult for doctors uh, moving forward. It's difficult for doctors to really understand that as, as a possibility. You almost had to put a gun to doctors' heads to get, get them to do some more testing. And that is, that's actually on the COVID front, that's been one of the silver linings of this whole crazy experience is that it really has opened up new avenues of research. I think people are starting to see the link between pathogens and microbes and neurodegenerative diseases. And they're opening up those new avenues of research. You know, that the timing of that combined with the failures of all the traditional therapies there's been a lot of work in the news about, you know, antibodies to amyloid beta and, and having that be the bad actor that is caused by uh, Alzheimer's disease. But those approaches have been unsuccessful. And the root cause, the pathogen causality of at least a significant amount of cases of Alzheimer's is an area of research that needs to be continued to be funded. Um, there's been links in the literature to Borrelia and to other pathogens, including bacteria and viruses for years but it hasn't gotten the funding that it needs to because of alternate theories that have since been proven to be wrong. Yeah, and this is the difficulty, as I say, it's hard to think out of the box. It's hard for doctors to realize they're wrong. And and once you see something, it's very hard to unsee something. Once you see Alzheimer's as being the primary diagnosis, it's very hard not to see Alzheimer's as the diagnosis. So it becomes very difficult. And as I say, not all things are black and white. And when you're dealing with neurological illnesses, they're definitely not black and white. So tell me more about what happened to you and your husband as a result of that, of making the proper diagnosis. Yeah. So once we realized that he was suffering from tick-borne illness, we sought out a, a physician that was Lyme literate and sought treatment. Um, and so we, he was on a very comprehensive protocol. He was on antibiotics, both oral and IV. He was on herbal, herbal therapies that have been shown to have some uh, benefit in Lyme. He was on immune therapies, detoxification therapies. Uh, it was a very holistic, integrative approach to healing. And there were a lot of moments where things seemed to be getting a lot better. He was 
starting to be alleviated from his symptoms. I think even though he presented first with cognitive decline, over time, he started getting some of the more traditional Lyme symptoms. I think people tend to put Lyme in a bucket, just like um, they put, you know, like you said, Alzheimer's. So they think of Lyme, they think of joint pain, they think of a fever, they think of a rash, but it honestly can present in a lot of different ways. And he didn't start having joint pain until his cognitive decline was markedly entrenched. But he did start having it. And through treatment, it went away. You know, there was one point where he couldn't even lift up his shoulders to put on his shirt. And all of that went away. Um, And we saw some improvement on the cognitive front. But at the end of the day, as I said, when he was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he was characterized as late stage disease. And then it was in another year after that, with his rapid decline, that he we figured out that the root cause of his decline was tick-borne illness. And so, and he also had some confounding factors of heavy metal toxicity. He had very elevated levels of lead and mercury, which are also led lead to cognitive decline. So his treatment modality was really difficult. And at the end of the day, his decline progressed to the point where I couldn't keep him at home anymore. I mean, we had two young children. At the time, they were five and eight. Um, and so I was drowning with trying to care for him, trying to care for the kids, trying to maintain the house. And so in 2019, I made the difficult decision to place him in a resident care facility. And he actually just recently uh, passed away. So his story doesn't unfortunately end well, but the journey and the things that we learned along the way were something that I wanted to capture. I wanted to share it with others so that they could see the signs and symptoms and live with us for a while um, and understand the things that we did well, the things that we did wrong and how if we had intervened potentially sooner, his story might've been different. And maybe in that, whoever reads our story can make their journey that much better. So that was kind of the motivation in writing the book. And we've taken so many health journeys out of it that make for me and my children that make our lives that much better and hopefully healthier as a result. Yeah. Let's mention the book here. And uh, what is the book called there, Nicole? It's called what lurks in the woods. Yeah. What lurks in the woods. And I, I recommend if you're, you have a loved one that has, a chronic illness, any chronic illness, I, I really recommend you pick this up because there are pearls in here that can help you deal with things. There are pearls in here that can help you with dealing with life. And, and I want you now, Nicole, to share some of the pearls that you have learned from this difficult time in your life and and how it hasn't destroyed you, but you're in a better place as a result of it now. Yeah. I think that it's taught me to be much more in tune with my body, right? I am younger than Russ. So I'm in my mid forties. And as you progress in age, you start, your body starts telling you things, right? You'll start getting aches and pains and, and mood issues and, maybe crankiness or things that most people just brush off as life. But I've really learned to listen to those signals because they are trying to tell you something. I've personally had food sensitivities that I've had jaw pain and back pain that when I took, I tested and figured out what was going on and I realized what was going on in my body and my gut. And then I removed those foods from my diet. I got better. 
and all of that, there's so much that we have as complex systems as, as humans that if we listen to those signals, then we can maintain our health in a way that really um, is beneficial for everyone. And I think the other thing that I realized is being a caregiver is so difficult, whether it's your spouse, your parents, or anyone that you know, it is a very stressful situation. And I had to figure out how to balance that stress and that capability. And, and I've integrated practices like meditation and mindfulness and just self-care as an engineer. And as a mom, you're always trying to figure out the logical way to make things better. And as a mom, you tend to put yourself last in the, in the camp, but I eventually realized that by not caring for myself, I was giving everybody a lesser version of me because I was worn down and run down. And no matter how much I gave to others, I was not the best that I possibly could be. And so if I took the time and did that self-care, then what I was providing in service to others was just a much better version of what I could offer. And so those lessons of listening to my body and, and trying to maintain it at a maximum level of health. And then also just being mindful of the stresses and the pressures that we have as humans and in modern society and trying to balance that to maintain my mental health and well-being has been things that I hope to take with me for the rest of my journey. Yeah. And I think that's important. You know, we quite often, no matter what we're doing, we put ourselves last. Yeah. We, we, we forget that we should be in that picture. And the simple, basic things that you should do, which I call self-care, uh, is something that we really need to do. You need to do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Because if don't, ultimately things start to fall apart. Ultimately, those biomechanical systems that you have start to derange and really don't do what they're supposed to. And I think it's important to realize that little things make all the difference. You know, spending a couple of minutes every day and writing down the things you're grateful for, you know, we have are so grateful for so many things. We should bring those to the heart. We should meditating, spending a little time quietly, just being a silent allows so many good things to happen. Exercising. Oh, my goodness. Exercising. Something we should all do. But how many times do you have something to do on your work schedule that you have this project you got to do? You forget that you got to about yourself because that's very important. And all those things need to be done over and over and over again. I think if anybody's listening to this and it's the beginning of the year or in the middle of the year, you need to start paying attention and start to make some basic changes. Yeah. And I think the, the one thing I would add to that is sleep. Sleep is the most restorative thing that we do and having good sleep hygiene and really maintaining that is one of the key things of self-care that I've really embraced as part of this whole thing. And in another show that I'm going to be doing uh, with a person by the name of Alan Meisner, uh, very soon it'll be on my network. We're going to go through a sleep ritual people need yeah. to be in because you need to be in a sleep ritual. You know, it's too hard to shut things off just at the get-go without, without letting it happen. If you just think you're going to do that, 
those uh, things keep going on and on and on, and you can't put things away. So shutting down your screens earlier in the day, letting things happen, reading maybe a little bit in the evening, something that's a different thing from what you're regularly doing, and then letting it go and letting it go in a cognitive way. Yep. I completely agree. And I think that Unfortunately, sometimes the best lessons in life are learned the hard way. And I want to make sure that Russ's journey isn't in vain. And we've really internalized it as a family in our all of the things that we do. And I'm hoping that as we share our story, people will become more aware of tick-borne illness, of uh, you know, the approaches that you can take with food and functional medicine and sleep hygiene and all of the types of things you need to do, self-care to live the the best possible life that you can. Two questions, Nicole. One is how do you live a fantastic life? (laughs) Um, I think that one of the things as I've recovered from Russ's illness is I've gotten really clear on my core values and what is important to me. And that, you know, I, I wrote them down. I hang them on the wall of our kitchen and I, share that with my kids. So I, we know what those are and I make all of my decisions based upon what my core values are. And so that's key. I think so many people, this is the new year. So many people want to think of new year's resolutions and goals, but if you don't really understand what's at your core and what you hold true, um, then it's difficult to make those types of decisions. And so being clear upon what you want and what you're going to be happy with at the end of your journey is important. Like if I was writing, I mean, I had the unfortunate, the unfortunate exercise of writing my husband's obituary. And so thinking about, well, what do I want my obituary to look like? And how do I get towards that? And keeping that front and center is important to me. Um, And as part of that, one of my core values is family, that my kids, I've had a high paced, fast career And I actually stepped back from that to help manage Russ's illness and now still kind of taking it at a reduced pace just so that I can focus on the family and my kids because of all the jobs that I have, that is by far the most important is making sure that my two kids are happy and good individuals that I feel comfortable releasing into the world. And so I think resetting my priorities and understanding what's really important in life has helped give me that kind of focus to make sure that I'm not just reacting to life, but actually defining the path that I want to take. Cool. That's a real good answer. Now, the flip side of this question for our listeners is how can our listeners live a fantastic life? Well, I think that you need to determine what is important to you. If you take that time and sit down and say, at the end of my journey, what am I going to be proud of? What do I want that obituary to look like for me? And and then focus on those things and figure out what aspects of your life are not adding to that journey and to that story. Because there are infinite distractions in this world that you can get sucked up in and lose hours, days, weeks, years, <laughs> if you're not careful. But if you if you focus on what's important to you and what you want your life to look like and where you want to be at the end of it, then that will help give you that clarity and guidance as you move on. Perfect. Okay. Well, we're close to the end of our time. 
Nicole, how can people get in touch with you and how can they get a copy of your book? So the book, What Lurks in the Woods, is really anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, so you can get it online. It's in both hardcover and or hard copy and ebook format. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook at Nicole Danielle Bell. And also I have a website, which is uh, NicoleDanielleBell.com. So I typically post um, lots of blog articles and information as it comes out that is active in the health and tick-borne illness space that hopefully people will find as a good resource. Well, for anybody that's dealing with the tick-borne illness uh, disease or think they have somebody in their family that may have chronic Lyme's disease or Lyme's disease, I encourage you to look at Nicole's site because there's a lot of information there that can help you and help you with your journey. Um, I'm Dr. Alan Leica. Thank you for being here. This is called How to Live a Fantastic Life. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. 